I'm Michael Holly, and you're listening to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. I am Adam Otenko. Today I am like uh, Peyton Pritchard. I'm taking off my mask, trying to find a rhythm here. With me, as always, twin brother Josh Motenko. That's right. I'm like Taco Fall. I'm still trying to find my role in the NBA. <laughs> You're going to switch teams, Josh, to figure that yeah. out? It doesn't matter what uniform. Right. I'm going to Cleveland. Going to Cleveland. And Mike Minkoff. I'm like Al Horford. I'll I'll be the steadying presence, guys. I'll just be the rock. Just do the right thing. You can count on me today. to be in the right place at the right time. Thank God for for Mike Minkoff. We're just not giving him enough credit. And we're, today on the pod, we are going to uh, do a rapid reaction to this Cleveland game. We're recording immediately afterwards. Cleveland game two. And then we are going to get into how the team has been playing before talking about this grit conversation we've been having specifically about Jason Tatum. We want to clarify, what do we mean when we talk about him? Uh, and because it seems like it's going to be a theme continuing here before looking ahead to next week. First off, game two against Cleveland. We lost a tough one the other night and pulled this one out in an ugly game. Josh, what did you see in this game? Well, it's like uh, 1990s basketball all over again. Um, and, I, and I did check, you know, like the Eastern Conference games of late have been pretty low scoring. Uh, you know, the new rules have kind of brought things back down to earth as far as points per game for the entire league. We are out of the 110-point era right now. We're averaging 107 points per game in the NBA this year because of the new rules, the new way that they're calling fouls. Um, and so people like it so far, but it's definitely the run and gun uh, is muted a little bit. And I think that we're seeing that in the Eastern Conference and specifically with Celtics games recently. I mean, what do we have? Thirty-two points at half halftime or something today. Um, so it's, it's more of a battle, all the way up to thirty-seven. Yeah, the, the you know the fact that we are scrappy on defense is helping us in in the Eastern Conference, and it really does remind me of the, like nineteen ninety-five. You know, when the Cleveland Cavaliers were the slowdown offense, averaging you know eighty points per game, seventy-five points per game. Um, but I think that these two games against the Cavs were really interesting. I was anticipating these games because I wanted to see how we played against the length that they have. Uh, we didn't see much of marketing, but, uh, and th- you know, the second game, this team was totally different without Jared Allen on the floor next to Mobley in the starting lineup. Um, but I-, I thought that we fared pretty well against the length that they have. And that's kind of the big thing that I wanted to see. What did you guys think? I mean, I, I, I agree with you. It was the first half of this game was a complete rock fight. Um, it was it it's everything about what the Celtics did on the court felt kind of ugly and hideous. And then somehow we were only down two points at the half. Uh, I wanted to feel joyful about that, but the basketball I had just watched by both teams was so unattractive and unappealing. I didn't really feel like I could. Um, <laughs> uh, the second half actually felt like a real basketball game at the NBA level, which was wonderful. Um, and it was nice to see the Celtics pull out uh, a game that was get got kind of tight. They were on the road. I think they were certainly helped by Evan Mobley, apparently having an, an elbow injury, according to the Cavs broadcast, um, and not coming back in the game in the fourth quarter. Uh, yeah, did you guys see that? Main takeaways. I didn't see the actual injury occur, but one of my main takeaways from the two games, and, and particularly the first game we played against the Cavs, was that Evan Mobley is insanely good. Like, And I had heard the hype and, and seen some of his highlights and stuff, but I mean, he kind of took over that fourth quarter uh, in, in the first game. He just made a ton of big shots and, and pressurized moments, just looks totally poised. He's like seven foot 25. Um, and just kind of does all the little things on the court. Uh, if I was a Cavs fan, I'd be super hyped about him. Um, 
but you know, would you the, agree the Celtics... he was the best? Mike, would you agree he was the best player on the court in Game One? I would agree he was the best player on the court in the fourth quarter of Game One. Hmm. Um, Which I don't, for I don't know uh, for a rookie, game. for a rookie, yeah, for a rookie, it's crazy. Of his rookie year it's is crazy. insane. Yeah, yeah, he's. Yeah. I, I mean, he totally took over that fourth quarter. I felt like his length is ridiculous, and he he fights for loose balls. So it's so like the length actually matters in situations where it should. You know, he's not one of these guys like Mo Bamba who's not active and and fighting for uh, extra possessions. Cheap shot, drive he by also, Mo Bamba. <laughs> yeah, we're cheap shotting Mo Bamba. Yeah, on hey, the pod watch today. out for my guy. Uh, but <laughs> I was I was uh, with Mobley there in the third. It was at the third quarter when he yeah when he was injured. Um, I was looking forward to seeing if Cantor was going to get in there because we were playing Horford a lot. Rob Williams was out in the second half. And so I knew we had a mismatch with Cantor. And the minute Cantor got in, um, the, the camera moved away. And then when it moved back, Evan, Evan Mobley was holding his elbow. And so it was like the first play Cantor got into the game. I really wanted to see us go at that mismatch. That's like the perfect opportunity to bring Cantor in the game and, and, and beat up on the young guy. Uh, but it was like <laughs> we didn't even get a chance. First play, uh, he was roughed up a little bit. And, you know, we didn't even see what happened. Um, but, yeah, Mobley is a stud. I, in the draft, I said that I, he kind of reminded me of KG. And I feel like he does those kinds of things. So he's kind of like a, a perfect complementary player. He's really poised. He does all the little things. He can pass. He challenges every shot. He can guard the perimeter. He's I like, mean, he's just a do-it-yourself you know, do kid. He's like a bigger, longer um, matrix. What's that guy's name? Sean Marion. Sean Marion. Yeah, Sean Marion. Yeah. Like he's like a do everything guy, but he's just like bigger, longer, uh, like a maybe even like more solid and less erratic than Sean Marion was, which I mean Sean Marion has had people arguing he maybe should be a Hall of Famer. So being, you know, on the on the positive side of his career trajectory is uh pretty pretty astounding. Um but back to the Celtics you know, I think the other takeaway, I just, their defense is looking like the real, real deal. Um, and I think, I think this is the team we expected, um, or at least the team I expected uh, once we, you know, swapped Kemba for Horford and then brought in a guy like Richardson. Um, and even after we brought in a guy like uh, Schroeder, um, the Schroeder Costa, as I have taken to calling him on Celtics blog Slack, um, because of his uh, predictably up and down play that makes everyone nauseated by the end. <laughs> um, but even when you know, where where even when he's scoring a career high, because he's co- accompanying it with like seven turnovers, uh, many of which are coming in like the fourth quarter in the final few minutes. Mike, but our offense I... is not going to be better than mediocre, and our defense uh, in, has been just exceptional of late. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Can I be just like the casual fan, uh, you know, in commentary with Dennis Schroeder? Bring it, bring it. Yeah, but Schroeder, he had twenty-eight points last game. He's he's been he's been killing. Did you see the move that he had that that looked like Rondo, where he got he had two guys on him as he was driving. He stopped, pivoted back, and hit the nice little floater. Look, I like the only I guy mean, that can get in the lane. Yeah, he's the only guy who gets that, in. There. That is actually true. <laughs> More often than not, which I think is. Part, probably what has Ime like screaming to himself internally um, while he's watching Schroeder also while doing that never pass the ball dribble the ball into the floor until the, the floor has a dent and uh, you know turn it over idiotically like four times out of out of 12 possessions during certain stretches of the game uh, he's he's really hit or miss Um I don't think, for example, we lost the the game, the first game against Cleveland because of Schroeder. Um, but he also had some harmful plays that didn't help us win it when it, when it got tighter at the end. So uh, he he has been really tough to root for, which is kind of what I think we all expected, and and why we were reluctant to sign him until we, he became so so in a, relatively inexpensive. Hey, can we just acknowledge at this point in the podcast that we don't actually care that much about this past game? If you came here listening, wanting a rapid reaction to Cleveland game two, like 
it's it's this team is a little tough to watch. It's very easy for me to get frustrated and 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 I'd rather focus on some themes, which it feels like we're already doing. Yeah. Yeah, the Schroeder coaster is one of our themes. <laughs> would you would you like to expound? He's emblematic of of a lot of the problems that we have on offense, uh, which is just isolation plays that Josh, I know you want to talk about. Yeah, there were there were an ISO heavy team. We have four ISO offensive players, and we're basically just giving the ball to them and letting them cook. And they have unlimited number of dribbles. They can do and, and offensive. Who are these moves. four players, Josh? The, these yeah. four players are Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Dennis Schroeder, and Jabari Parker. And yeah, Jabari, Jabari Parker, he doesn't get any run, right? But we can't dismiss the fact that we give him the ball and let him cook. That it's the same thing as that we do with Dennis Schroeder. And I mean, the first Cleveland game, we didn't really run many plays. At least the second game, we were actually running more sets, uh, not just from the start of the game or the start of the second half, but you know, when it, when every coach is going to say, "Here's how we're starting out the half. We're running this set." But it seemed like guys were trying to get us into sets in the second game. Yeah. So. Do you think? I mean, how much of that? Because to your point, right? Like in the first game. The first game against the Cavs was basically just Dennis Schroeder every single time when he was on the court, taking the ball, dribbling for 10 seconds and trying to penetrate into the lane and either, you know, take a layup or take like a fall, a fade, fade away mid-range jump shot. That, that's basically the entire offensive game plan for us, that first Cavs game. And the second game, I, I likewise observed the same thing, you know, way more sets were being run uh offense was being initiated far more by marcus smart or jason tatum uh even when schroeder was on the court or when they were all sharing the court which is you know to me far preferable than schroeder just getting to to run iso the whole time so do you think that was like a very intentional and active adjustment in response to how schroeder played in the preceding game or do you think it was um not so directly related or like no being it's like not, it's not directed you cannot have the ball as much in your hands no no it's not directed yeah, that was not planned we, we that was not planned i can i take this josh that, yeah go ahead what do you mean uh, us I, running I would, more offense was not planned <laughs> i in, in the in the first cleveland game the loss I thought we actually had more flow in the offense in the first three quarters. About three minutes left in the third quarter was when we started to get stagnant and Schroeder was playing well and hitting his shots. So I would say it's like it's hard to argue with that when he's doing it and they're going in. Uh, but right. we just got stagnant and stopped passing the ball. And then the only option was one-on-one. And that's the whole problem with schroeder and tatum's one-on-one play is that you dribble around you go on basically you're going one on five everybody else is standing around doing nothing everybody else falls out of the offensive flow you're not generating shots for other open uh, shots for other people you're not swinging the ball around to find the best shot or a good shot as you i mean as you alluded to earlier what's the point of schroeder getting into the lane if he's not looking uh, to to pass the ball if he's not looking to draw the defense and kick, um, and it's the same with Tatum. So I think that's what happened at the, in the fourth quarter and, and at the end of the third in first Cleveland game. And you know Jalen Brown is a little bit less so in, in this regard. I think that he's more, a guy who's more looking to make a high IQ play or just make the really simple play, even if it's a pass right next to him to a guy who's open because he's drawn a double team. Tatum doesn't always see that, you know, um, and it's. This is more, I think, a reaction to, in general, just how we are are playing, um, and how we, I think, how we set out to play in the beginning of the year. Let's put Tatum and Brown in tons of ball screens, keep the ball in our best players' hands, and let them create. But they're not creating as well in their third year as lead ball handlers and facilitators as they were in their second year. And you know, to be honest, I think that the the consistency of the coaching staff and the relationship between coach and players is not there. And so one of the results of that is players are trying something different. They're trying something on to see if it'll work. And so it's, it's not, it's not working as much. And to me, my main point is it doesn't matter if it's going in for shooter or not. Um, and even like 
Coach Bill Sy was saying recently that it, you know if Tatum was averaging his normal average scoring wise and hitting the shots that he normally hits, which he hasn't been recently, you know we may have a few more wins. But I don't even care about that either. To me, it's just about watching this team play. When you think back on Celtics history, when did we have a winning team that was like you know the Kobe Bryant Lakers, where you had one guy who was a volume shooter and a bunch of other guys sitting around watching him cook? That's just not Celtics basketball. And so as a basketball purist, I want to see more ball movement. You know, like I need I need that in my Celtics uh, for the love of Celtics pride. Like we need to play together and to move the ball and play as a unit, play as a team instead of a my turn, your turn thing, even if we have well, these special talents like we have. Can I, Amen, can, brother. I can I offer some pr- perspective? Please. Can I just be so? I agree on offense. We're not always playing like a team on defense. However, we are playing like an absolute juggernaut of late. So over the last seven games, the Celtics just by the way, despite all of this kind of, you know, maybe, maybe slightly skewing negative talk. um, The Celtics are five and two over our last seven. Uh, We have, we have evened our record back up to 500 after starting the season, uh, a pretty painful um, uh, uh, two and five over that, over that seven game stretch, our defensive rating is best in the NBA, uh, at 97 points per hundred possessions. Uh, number two in the NBA over that span, the golden state warriors who have been the best team in the NBA so far. Um, number three, the Phoenix suns who went to the finals last year. Um, the teams that we're keeping company with as far as net rating over the seven games span, the Golden State Warriors, the Phoenix Suns, the Brooklyn Nets, the LA Clippers, and the Denver Nuggets. Also, the Cleveland Cavaliers, incidentally, are have been playing uh, a, a tick below us and the Nuggets, who are kind of tied at number five there. Um, so we, on the defensive end, have been playing exceptional team ball. Uh, this is almost like a, th- a a bizarro throwback to the Jim O'Brien Celtics, right? Like that was ugly offense, <laughs> but we were all bought in on defense. Um, and we had, you know, we lived at, at the, <laughs> we prayed at the altar of Antoine Walker three pointers. Uh, and we just hoped that the, the shots would fall that day. Uh, but the team was, you know, we had Eric Williams, we had, uh, who else did we have? Who were our defensive stalwarts on that team? Walter McCarty. Um, goodness. Uh, but it, it's kind of, you know, our, our defensive effort has been phenomenal of late. And it's leading to, you know, overall clearly improved play. Um, and again, I think if you take a macro perspective with this team, we did have a rookie coach. Adam, you pointed that out a few episodes ago. Uh, we were adjusting to a new defensive scheme. If you if you allow for those growing pains, recognize that we lost I think three games in overtime, and we blew that kind of not really forgivable big lead to Chicago. You know we could easily be a ten and four or eleven and three team right now. Um, so as painful as the offense has been to watch, oh, and our second or perhaps best player has been injured for the past five games. So if you take all of that into account, like, uh, you know, my, my, my sunglasses are, are reasonably green tinted right now. The so other but, piece of what you're talking about there, Mike is, is the shooting We're this team is not shooting as good as they should be. Um, Jason Tatum isn't shooting as well as, as he should be. Al Horford isn't shooting as well from three as he should be. Neesmith isn't shooting as well as he can. Pritchard isn't hitting shots. There, there is a lot of room to, to, come back to the mean with, with shooting percentages, especially from three. Um, and I think this is a great example of two steps forward, one step back uh, over the last week or, or so, um, where there's dramatically improved play in some areas, dramatically improved focus, um, the defense that you're talking about. And there's still a lot of frustrating things that are happening. You know, when you talk about Jalen Brown being out, okay, well, but... This Cleveland team, who was nine and five coming into tonight, they're missing a number of players too. Markinen is out. Kevin Love is out. Um, uh, Sexton is injured. Uh, yeah. The Milwaukee team that we beat in overtime, they were missing Giannis 
and Brooke Lopez, and I think yeah. maybe somebody else. Like it's not like we're playing fully healthy teams undermanned and and really fighting it out. We're, we're, this is this is it's. I would actually argue that the other teams have have had less good players than we have. Um, but but I, I I'm I'm in agreement with you that there's some room for optimism here, and uh, it's it's just a process here. And, and getting back to Ime, if you're a fan and you are not listening to his press conferences, I would recommend trying that uh, because Ime Odoka is honest. He yeah. is going to tell you exactly what is happening with this team. You do not have to listen to this podcast to figure it out. Ime will tell you, and I love that about him. It may not, you know, he speaks in, in a, a tone of voice that is it's not, not going to get you excited, but he's going to tell you exactly what's going on. He's going to tell you our rotations are made up by, by things that are happening on the court, not things that are happening off of the court. And we've got players who are frustrated by that. And he's going to tell you that uh, he, what he's telling Tatum to do and the challenges that Tatum has, and it's echoing a, a lot of what, what we and other folks in the media are saying. Uh, so honest email. I like it. Honest email. I'm, my thing with him, though, is is he going to manage what he's telling us in his press conferences and what he's telling Tatum with with their playing time? Like, is he going to bench people if they're not if they're doing too much ISO, you know, ISO heavy offense or too much complaining or whatever it might be? You know, Josh Richardson, he takes really terrible angles defensively on his closeouts it's it bothers me because everyone thinks he's a really good defensive player because he hustles and he's quick but his his details are terrible and i'd like other guys to be playing over him i think romeo langford not only should be playing over him but should be you know having most of his minutes i feel like romeo could be playing 30 minutes a game right now and i think that we could be using him off of ball screens and you know doing some creation too because he's not going to just drive to the hoop and score actually he's been too passive He's passed up a couple of layups in the last three games um, that, that have been frustrating, but it's because he's driving, looking to pass and is able to score and finish with athleticism. So, but, but regarding Ime, like, is he going to let the, the minutes do the talking of, of whether it's a star or not doing what he's asking? Um, because well, right think... now he's, it seems like he's in his first year in the NBA and he's going to let, you know, Tatum and Schroeder specifically play as many minutes as they want, you know, regardless of how they're playing. I, I, I think you're making that observation based on one side of the ball, because I think, I think Tatum like tonight against the Cavs Tatum defended his, you know, what off, like he was great defensively. He had a, a couple of blocks, a number of deflections, um uh, and and was part of a really really disruptive defensive unit. Um, Schroeder is not a great defender, but he has been playing part of really 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 strong defensive teams. I mean, you know, you're right. Like Josh Richardson, relatively speaking, has been uh has had one of the worst individual defensive ratings on the team over this last seven game stretch. Um, however, somewhat strangely, he's had one of the higher, actually the highest offensive rating among regulars, um, over that same period. Uh, but like Schroeder, when the, when he's on the court, the team has had an absolutely elite defense. Basically when everyone's on the court, the team has had an elite defense. And, and so I, my hunch is that Ime is going to tolerate, he's going to abide people messing up some of the the place the the offensive sets for the time being um going a little too iso heavy as long as they're really committing on the defensive end and i would expect that that will have show gradual improvement over the course of the season but i also think to your earlier point josh i agree with you like we have iso heavy players so i think you kind of have to understand like there's only so much of some of their like i think tatum has greater potential to change than schroeder right he's younger he's hopefully more impressionable schroeder kind of is what he is uh jalen i think will continue to grow so i'm sure Ime will continue to work them in film sessions and and 
highlight what they need to work on and push them to improve as playmakers. Um, but we'll probably also accept to some degree what they're doing if they're all bought in on the defensive end and the team is performing as a truly elite defense. Yeah, I think yeah, part of this... Out of, go ahead. Adam, let me respond. I think part of this is that, you know, with Marcus Smart being the go-to point guard to start off the season with no Kemba Walker, no Kyrie Irving, no better, you know, Isaiah Thomas, he's now finally the starting point guard on this team. I expected his assist to continue to rise as they did last year. I think he was at 5.7 last year. I was looking for a seven assist year out of Marcus Smart, and I was looking for the Celtics to have him, you know, run the offense and begin sets. And, uh, you know, we're not seeing that. And so there's a little bit of disappointment in that because I think that Marcus has the ability to do that. And that takes him out of the, you know, shot maker type role. Um, But I also think that there's, I also think that a big time ball mover is something that we need. And I, I was hoping Marcus Smart would be that like, like we're seeing with Ricky Rubio or Alex Caruso or Malcolm Brogdon or Lonzo Ball or even Josh Giddy, like there's guys out there. So part of this, I think, is on is on the front office where we need somebody on our team. It's not Horford, even though he's a good ball mover. We need someone to to really like get some guys some assists and get that ball whipping around because we all know that passing is contagious. Like just look at the Hornets right now with Lamelo Ball. The passing is contagious. And right now I'm a little worried that the isolation is becoming a little contagious. Yeah, I'd call it, I'd call it malignant. <laughs> just to, just to quickly jump in, uh, Adam, before you, you continue, uh, cause it's, it's germane to what we were talking about a moment ago. So, um, in Ime Udoka's comments after the game, one of the things he said is with the Celtics defense playing well, his focus is now on the offense. He's happy they are holding teams under 100 points regularly, but knows the offense needs to start putting up more points. So um, I think, you know, I I think he, and then Adam, I think this might feed into exactly what you're going to say. Yes. Honest email, taking the words right out of my mouth. Before I go to that, Josh, I just did a little quick math. Last five games, Marcus Smart averaging 6.2 assists per game. So those may be going up with uh, post his comments to his teammates um, and and a slight shift in his role um, or being allowed to play the role that he you and I think he was hoping to play more of because I think that's how he views his role he wants to be passing the ball more uh, but I, I think uh, one thing at a time here and and I we met, I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago and Josh I remember asking you about it like as a coach do you, focus on all of the problems that you have as a team and try and fix them all at the same time, or you do you do one at a time? And I, I you answered that you, you express all of the issues. And what I think we're seeing here is Emeo Doka focusing on what's most important here. Uh, primarily, it is the f- consistent, maintained focus and effort, number one, and defense, number two. And those obviously go hand in hand. They're intertwined, especially on the defensive end. And if you told me two weeks ago when we had that podcast, when this team was at its low point so far this season, that in one week I would see a dramatic difference in the effort of this team and in their defense that would show up in in the statistics that Mike talked about, I would have been ecstatic. I would have taken that. So, yeah, there's a lot of other problems that this team has. Uh, one on uh, ISO offense, uh, not put uh, pushing the pace. I can't tell you how many times Locks I see a player. Out. Rebounding was another one I was going to mention. We're getting turnovers on the glass. Turnovers is another huge one. Like, <laughs> but even little things like like uh, uh, when they roll the ball to Schroeder and he waits, even though they're ahead and they don't want to be uh, saving the clock. They actually want to be burning clock. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. But I, I was going to say, I can't tell you how many times I see a player fall on the other team, miss a layup or uh, and, and fall, and then or even make one, and we've got obvious numbers, and then we decide to walk it up the court. We don't take advantage of five-on-fours uh, or getting the ball moving around and the defense moving. So lots of other problems, and, and I think it's, again, one thing at a time. Baby steps to improving this team. we got a new coach. Uh, the, the players are, are adjusting to it. And, um, and I think we're seeing progress. It's just not as quickly as we all want. Well, let me, let me put it to you guys like this. Do you guys remember a year in the last, well, 
10 years, 20 years, where the broadcasters were, you know, discussing their uh, displeasures with how certain, you know, how, how the team was playing in certain ways. Like, for example, Mike Gorman is consistent, consistently uh, talking about Tatum complaining to the refs. You know, he's got to yep. stop doing that. Um, Brian Scalabrini is consistently explaining that we need to drive, get into the paint, and then kick it out and then drive against a closeout again, like getting multiple drives against closeouts and getting into the paint and driving to pass. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that we were working on at the JUCO level. This is the NBA. I, uh, do you remember broadcasters, you know, like being this no, open no, about what we need to work on? No, but that's because we had Tommy Heinsohn who was ever optimistic and brought a joy and buoyancy to the broadcast that I don't think is going to be replicated. So I think I think Gorman is, uh, you know, he's 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 probably only got a few more years at most left in him at this point. So he's just calling it like he sees more now, <laughs> and and Scal is, you know, um, just less less uh, glasses always full uh, than Tommy Heinsohn was, um, and, and we'll, we'll never have another Tommy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna credit it to that more than I mean I I think the Celtics are certainly frustrating to watch at times i don't disagree with anything you're saying but i also think it's the 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 compass arrow is pointing the right way uh, and there's a lot lot to be encouraged by hard to argue with that i would add that uh i think that it's just been going on long so long that they are as frustrated by it as we are and that is what's and, and i think mike wants to be mike gorman wants to be uh supportive of the team obviously he, he works for the team's network um so uh to some extent, I think he feels a, a responsibility to to support the team, uh, but it's hard to do it when when it's been going on this long. And uh, and and Mike uh, Gorman is on record as saying he has no plans to retire. So, which is <laughs> music to my ears. Um, yeah. I, one of the other things the that I've seen recently, one of the other things I've seen recently is, uh, I mean, obviously we haven't talked enough about Al Horford and how amazing he is, but the other guy that's been playing phenomenally well is Robert Williams. And uh, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you will recall that when he signed his extension, I came out as saying that it was an overpay. And twice so far this year, I have thought, you know what? It's time for me to come on the podcast and say that I think Uh I was wrong in saying that. And each of those times, Robert Williams has gotten injured and missed a game. Yeah. Uh, so he was out and he, he missed this one uh, or what was the second he half? He missed the second one? half. But yeah. Yep. And we'll see what happens there. But uh, I'm not ready to come out and say it quite yet. I just <laughs> wanted to mention. <laughs> wait a second. To think wait about a second. I'm this, ready to do it. For the record, and then he goes every, out. Celtics pride, every Celtics pride listener, this was Adam Otenko saying he was wrong about the Robert Williams thing, but trying to cover his bases. So Nope. Nope. I'm very Josh, happy to say agree with me, wrong. right? This is this is, like, at, this is like this is like when Adam one hundred percent just said he was wrong. I, no, this is like when yet. you need to go apologize to somebody, and instead of saying "I'm sorry," you say "I apologize." I, I I will apologize directly on this podcast to Robert Williams uh, if he shows the that he that the concerns that I had are, are not an issue, which is minutes and staying on the court. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I yeah, he's like, looking good so far. Let's see what happens like, with you these know injuries. What? You know what? I owe you an apology. Okay, Let's go ahead. see what happens with these injuries. No, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. All right. All right. So do you guys have any other final reactions or thoughts on, no, the, on the Celtics' on. Recent, recent play? All right, great. So, you know, as I was noting, I, I feel like the, the, the compass arrow is pointing in the right way here. Um, and to me, that actually, you know, has shown and demonstrated for the team. If we remember, I mean, we talked about this last week. We taught, we, we, you know, went, went through kind of what had been a roller coaster preceding 10 days, um, kind of with the exclamation point being Marcus Smart kind of calling out uh, Tatum and Brown for not moving the ball enough. And since that point, the Celtics as a team have been extremely resilient and, and that seven game kind of stretch that I've been pointing to is since Marcus Smart's comments. So we've gone five and two since he, since he made those public comments. Um, the team has really galvanized. They've been playing the best defense in the league. Um, 
and this this kind of demonstration of like team wide and kind of a macro scale resilience of the team kind of galvanizing and bouncing back feeds into this other conversation we've been having about some of the micro level resilience of some of the players. And for those that are regular listeners, you probably know that over the past few episodes, we've gone pretty hard at some of the players, in particular, probably Jason Tatum, who, you know, we've called soft. We refer to as pusillanimous, pusillanimous meaning like timid. Um, I mean, we, I came and, up with a whole list of nicknames that were not. Kind. And Adam came up with a whole list of nicknames that were not kind. <laughs> um, and we received some feedback about about uh, the tone that we were setting, uh, suggesting that maybe we were taking it a little too far. And and you know we took that feedback pretty seriously, and we wanted to think about you know what that feedback meant. And 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 we felt like it was an important time to to you know take a moment to say to to ask ourselves what do we really mean when we are referring to a player being gritty or resilient or mentally tough and by extension what are we implying or stating outright when we call somebody soft or or mentally weak or 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 just playing playing weak um and so you know for me what one of the kind of core reference points I use when I think about grit and resilience is work by Angela Lee Duckworth. Uh, she's given a, a really famous TED talk um, on the power of persistence, if I, I think I'm getting the name right. Um, and and she refers to grit as the tendency to sustain interest in and effort toward very long-term goals and resilience being the ability to bounce back after we have struggled, faltered, or failed. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, let's let's open this up, Josh or Adam. Like, is that kind of how you guys think about grit and resilience or mental toughness? And then if you're calling someone soft, are you saying it's a lack of that? What do you guys mean when you're talking about that? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. As this is my wheelhouse, both as a coach and you know, this was what I did my academic research on in, in grad school and sports psychology is, you know, mental toughness. What does that mean? What does resiliency mean? Right. And so that's what we're talking about the ability to respond emotionally and psychologically to adversity right it's like emotional stamina right we want to expect that things aren't necessarily going to go our way and that when they don't go our way our way we know how to focus on the things that we can control our attitude our effort those are always within our control right and so, so body language reveals that it reveals your your inner mental stamina your resiliency. So can I ask a question? So like when you have, I mean, so one of the things that I know has, has frustrated all of us is certain players. Tatum is one of them. He's definitely not the only one, you know, complaining to the, the refs too much, right. And losing focus in the moment and not getting back on defense, you know, showing bad body language that might take other players or distract other players on the team. Right. And, and to me, that's kind of like an incident, of of micro a micro incident of of a lack of resilience or a lack of grit um but if if kind of that same player is out on the court every night you know staying healthy com competing generally and is in the gym working hard getting better part of a team that's getting better like for you do you draw a line or like is you know between like grit or resilience within a single game versus kind of aggregated grit and resilience? Well, you, you can always improve that the less times you complain to the ref or pause to get back on defense or slump your shoulders down and, and have like mopey posture or don't take feedback from a teammate well and they're kind of like rolling your eyes or brushing them off or not responding to them verbally or with body language like in, a, in an affirmative way, like all those are examples that you could cut down the numbers of times that you're doing those negative things throughout the course of a season and you'd be getting better, right? Right, but I mean, but isn't there, a? I guess my question is, isn't beyond those specific behaviors, isn't there an inherent grit, like for someone to be as talented and accomplished as Jason Tatum is in the NBA, you know, at 22 years old, like he must have a truly elite level of grit and resilience, right? Relative to humans, normal humans. 
So like when we're talking about like quote unquote softness, it's still like upper upper echelon like of resilience to me because he's got to get in the gym and work and work and work at a level that most people just don't. Do you agree with that or do you guys disagree? No, this is this isn't about your like work ethic and how many hours you put in. This is about when adversity hits, right? Something unexpected, unpredictable happens. How do you respond in that moment? And so just because you've been in a lot of those moments doesn't mean that you're automatically going to respond better than that. I think there's a lot of tougher, mentally tougher players than a lot of NBA players, but they didn't have the talent to make it to the NBA, right? So I think that these guys make it to the NBA off of talent and practice and hard work, but that doesn't mean that when adversity hits in the moment, they're going to respond the right way. And I think, in fact, that they're catered to so much that they have a tendency more so to to respond in the wrong way. I think overall, I think that's, we, that's just what I've noticed from, from being at the division one level division. Yeah. Let me, let me bring this back to very concrete things that we've said, because the, the big question here is what do we mean with the words that we use and what do we not mean? So Josh, I think you were the first one to start calling Jason Tatum soft on this podcast. And it happened at least a year ago, at least. Um, when you say soft, what do you mean? Not resilient. And if the word, if the word is an issue, I, I, like, I don't know if I want to keep saying that word because if it's an issue for people, I should just be saying he's not resilient or he's mopey. Yeah. Right. Like, well, I'll pick a better word. It also relates to, yeah, well, so we'll get to that. To me, it also relates to, um, to him being a finesse player, to him driving to the hoop and taking contact, seeking out contact. Uh, he, he likes a step back. He likes a fall away typically. And, and I would, I would, I mean, I think he knows he's a finesse player yeah. uh, as opposed to a, a really like get, get into people's chest player. And obviously he's made huge strides in, in shifting that because that's an important part of being a, the kind of player he wants to be in this game. Um, so and it's that's resilience. A good, that's a good it's his word. Style of finesse. play. Adam, finesse is the right word too. Like finesse yeah, in, a, intrinsically a, implies some level of avoidance. Yeah, it's going around as opposed to going through. And I think avoidance is a is a great piece of this, Josh. I like when you like. There's an avoidance of of some of the reality here. Like going back to honest Ime, uh, he he has come out and said, I, I believe that. Uh, that he, I know he, he's come out and said he's talked to Tatum about um, getting back on defense and and like letting go of of the calls that that don't go his way. Um, and I can't remember if he said this piece or not, but some of those calls that Tatum is complaining about are actually not fouls, uh, and and that's a huge issue there. Um, I mean, so I like with my nicknames, there were categories to it. It was one about his complaining, another category about him being soft, and I think Josh, I'm I'm on board with what you're saying, and I've slowly come on board with that over the last year. And then another piece was about the ISO stuff. Um, and and I think that there's some grit ideas related to the isolation stuff too, which is that Tatum has a style of play that he has developed over his entire career that is about isolation. Like he is one of the best isolation scorers in the game. And even for players at that level, if you're not playing within a, an offensive system within your team, you're not going to win. You're right. just not I mean, going to. Even the, even Brooklyn has a system. Right. And then we got to listen to Brian Scalabrini saying, "Those I, the, we work on the step back so that at the end of games or the end of shot clocks or when you need it, you have that in your bag. But that doesn't mean that you dribble, 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 go to that move when everyone else is standing around watching during you know the first quarter, the second quarter, third quarter, not a shot clock running down situation. Which is what exactly what Tatum does. That's his first move. Right. It slows the whole offense down. And so there's a grit piece to that of like, I know that's what you're good at. And I know that you're good enough to carry a team at points, but can you shift that? Can you learn when that is appropriate and when it isn't? Can you work within a system? Can you learn to pass the ball in the ways that Marcus Smart was suggesting? And I, I think he and Jalen Brown are doing that. They're, they are learning that. Uh, but that is a part of this process. Yeah, and I'm on record as saying I think I think it can be learned. Yeah, and so that I mean that I I agree that I think they are confronting this. I, I 
I obviously, and I've said many times, I think both of them have a lot of, uh, you know, room to improve on the, on the playmaking side. They, you know, Jalen acknowledged it in the, in the wake of Marcus's comments, Emay's come out and said it publicly. Um, so it, it's, it's not a secret that they need to improve there, but where, you know, and I agree on kind of this finesse, the frustrating, some of the frustration um, in, in, in observing kind of Tatum play with finesse, especially as he continues to fill out and actually seem to physically, seems to physically have the strength to be able to play through guys more effectively. He had one drive um, in the second game against the Cavs tonight uh, where he just early in the game where he went through Dean Wade um, who I love when they call D Wade because it just cracks me up. Um, uh, and he just put it, you know, basically just put his shoulder right through his chest, got an and one. Um, and it was great. It's like, why? please do that more. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, I think I thought your answer was interesting earlier, Josh, because to me, the fact that Tatum and Brown are are both kind of they are working on it. it it requires a total mindset change and kind of behavior change which is hard to do um for them to kind of respond to the type of coaching and instruction that they are getting now at the at this point in their careers um but they are kind of working on and improving in this area and so to me that does represent kind of a a level of of grit and resilience and and mental toughness kind of at the macro level, like I, I do see them as people that are, are going to get stronger and tougher and more effective at this. But at the same time, I also think Tatum plays with too much finesse now. So it, you know, I, I feel myself getting pulled in both directions in this conversation, most of the time that we're having it. Cause I, I have so much respect for <laughs> how amazing Tatum is for how young he is, but also find myself getting so frustrated and, in, in specific games and specific moments when he's not um, bringing more force uh, to his play and performance. And this is the, this is the hidden issue with Jason Tatum when he's dropping 50 and, you know, averaging 27 a game. Like we don't notice this as much when he's, his scoring drops down. Now all of a sudden some of the weaknesses are more glaring. And I think the two weaknesses for him are also weaknesses for the team, right? The lack of ball movement, the lack of toughness, those can be fixed, if you will, by you know growing up and maturity. It can be fixed, if you will, by the coaching staff, like monitoring minutes and having those two things be minutes dependent. But I don't see that happening in a first year head coach's uh, first year of the, of the head coach. It could also be fixed via trade. We could bring in a tough guy, or we can bring in a ball mover, a ball mover who can get you know that uh, to be contagious again, as we know that that can always be. So, you know, there, there's definitely hope in a lot of different forms on the horizon. I want to ask you a concrete question too, Mike. Uh, on a recent podcast, you you were describing Jason Tatum as, I, I believe it was having a losing mindset. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yes. So what did you um, mean when you say that? So that was at that point in time, and I can't remember which game specifically I was reacting to. Um uh, but it was a combination of playing too ISO heavy on offense. Oh, I think it was, it may have been after the Chicago game, after the Chicago mm-hmm. collapse. I, I'm pretty sure it was. And it was a combination of, of being a bit too ISO heavy on offense, but I think it was more um, kind of what, what Josh, you were talking about at the onset. It was, it was about body language. It was about the energy he was carrying when the bulls went on their run and, and, you know, there was a, a, a pass, a passivity in his play and the whole team's play. Um, but I think I zeroed in on him because, you know, he purports to be the superstar or, you know, the, the media purport, purports him to be the superstar. And he came out this season at the beginning of the season talking about how, you know, it's not a good enough to be a top 10 to 15 player. He's got to dominate every night. Um, and, and so for me, it was this frustrating juxtaposition of talking that way, right. but behaving with, with that level of passivity that is completely incongruous with dominating. 
and you know we're talking we talk about kind of the foul drawing and like uh you know playing with force versus playing with finesse um you know one of the things that i think the the new nba rules and and, uh, around how they call fouls has really shined a light on is like who are the players that truly play with force because they're the ones whose fouls haven't really changed at all and like two guys that have notably stood out on that front are Giannis um Antetokounmpo and Jimmy Butler and those guys are guys that no one would have ever questioned the toughness that they play with. Whereas guys like James Harden are adjusting and struggling to adjust or uh, Trey young, his free throws are down, right? Those are not never guys that people were going to say were playing with massive force, though certainly people were very impressed with Trey young's performance in the playoff last year, myself included. Um, Regardless, I think, you know, we we've talked about, we don't really expect Tatum to ever play with the level of consistent force of someone like a Giannis or Jimmy Butler, like that level of force is an elite skill in and of itself. And not everyone can reach that. But, but I think collectively, right. And it sounds like from this conversation, we all just want to see that, that level of kind of force and, and kind of aggression really in, in the style of play to, to continue to tick up a notch or a few notches um, as Tatum matures as a player. Yeah, I think I think we want to see not just the physical force and resilience, but also mental as well. Um, I, I was listening to and Kyle Korver on... Yeah, I was listening to Kyle Korver on, on JJ Reddick's podcast recently, and he was talking about LeBron James. And what he said was that the, the most impressive quality of LeBron James to Kyle Korver is his ability to bounce back from things to to like go back at it the next day and he talked about that as both a physical and a mental thing so physically he's like first one in the gym last one out season ends and he's he's on on a, a, a an exercise machine getting ready for the next year um as well as like how impressive it is and and i mean i think the most impressive thing about lebron has been that he hasn't had any major injuries that's unbelievable to me and even the minor injuries have not sidelined him for very long, uh, and so so physically he's he has kind of figured it out in in a really impressive way. And mentally, Corver was saying that like he's never seen anybody, he's never played with another player who's able to just kind of like let things flow off of him, let negativity go, um, and that is something that I think is an incredibly challenging thing. Um, and to me, that that brings me to the fact that I think the words that we use matter and I, and partly what we're talking about here is being really specific about what we mean and what we don't. And it's partly because we understand that it's important to be careful about the, about what we're saying. Um, and, and there is a bit of a dichotomy here. So like Jason Tatum is a human being and he's, it, it, it is a difficult thing. Like, like Corver was saying about, LeBron, it's a really difficult thing to have the spotlight and the criticism that he has and, and that I think any high-level professional athlete has. They talk about it. It doesn't take long for them to start saying, this is a job. I come and I do a job. And part of their job, they, and they recognize this, is to be a public persona, to be a public person where their performance is criticized we are have this podcast and fans are listening to this because of that. That's the reason. And, and that generates a lot of the money that they make. And it's it's a symbiotic relationship, but it's not easy to be a human being in that position. And so yeah, they're a they're a person and they're a public, they have a they're in the public eye. And mm-hmm. when we're criticizing performance, we wanna it's hard to to find that balance between making sure that you're treating somebody as a person and having honest accountability and and being a fan or being a media member. Um, and so I think what's important to me at least is, is uh, like I want to be clear that especially when you're using some of the words that we've been using, that it can sound like it, it can be getting into sort of a mental health conversation where we can be using words. Like when we talk about mental mindset, we're talking like we're getting into some psychology here. And I mean, Josh mentioned sports psychology. So when we're talking about this, we want to be careful about it because on the one hand, we're not trying to call anybody out for 
things going on in their personal life. And I'm not saying that anything is with Tatum. I have no idea. But <laughs> even growing up, like <laughs> I remember, I think Wade Boggs had a tough year. Uh, a down year. And then it came out later, like, yeah, he was going through a divorce at that time. But it's like, yeah, divorces usually result in, in reduced uh, performance. Uh, personal lives impact professional performance, I think. Um, and but, so uh, it, how do you how do you handle that? I think that's a question that I'm still holding and I don't have a clear answer to yet. So this is this is not psychology. This is sports psychology. Right, so the the toughest of them all mentally in this game was Michael Jordan. That's why he's the goat. And we saw from the Last Dance, like as a person, he wasn't always acting in the healthiest way. But as an athlete, and as, you know, his sport psychology was a winning mentality. And so when you're breaking down, like Jason, we're not talking about Jason Tatum the man. We're not his psychology. We're talking about his sport psychology. Jason Tatum the athlete, right? So. You know, you want you want your players to be, uh, you know, monsters on the court, and then when they get off the court, you want them to be gentlemen. You know, it's like the, the, that's the ideal, um, and and that I think is touches on what you're talking about, Adam. There's a difference here, and and it's like when Bill Simmons is always saying, "I sports hate this guy." He doesn't hate the guy; it's a sports hate. I think there's there's more ambiguity in this day and age with the rise in in awareness of mental health, which I think is a phenomenal thing. I fully yeah, support it. Totally. But I think it, it, it makes that area much grayer. I, it, it, it's a button. You got to turn it on and turn it off. It's like when you go in, when you walk into the gym for practice, it's a different vibe. You have to have a different energy about yourself. You know, you, you can't go in like, you, you know, you're thinking about your problems. You got, you, you, that's your opportunity to go in and forget about all your problems and like be able to turn on this other persona that is part of your identity as an athlete and we all experience that when we come in and out of the gym for practice or for a game like you get you get amped up and if you're not already you better get yourself amped up because it's game time or it's practice time it's time to go to work yeah i i mean i just i agree that it is it is kind of inherently complicated um and again it's like like i was saying before in response to your question to me about my comments on on kind of a quote-unquote losing mindset or loser mindset you know it it's um this intertwined web of yes he's a he's a human and and those are you know those are hard that's harsh ways to characterize another human uh, but he also um you know is this you know super you know max level player saying he needs to dominate and but so kind of like you're saying, Josh, he kind of needs to get, you know, he's put it, he's in a position and he's kind of put a little bit of a target on his back in, in setting this expectation for how he's going to perform and then not meeting it in, in delivery. Um, and so it, it does create this kind of uh, complicating nexus when you're in this kind of media slash fan position and, and talking about the team and, and feeling frustrated about the team or observing frustrated, observing and, and assessing frustrating trends about the team. Um, uh, but, but I, you know, I, I think we all felt like there's an important, important need to, to kind of focus our intentionality about how we're, how we're talking about all of this. Well, the team as a whole has been showing more toughness, grit, competitiveness over the last week or two they play atlanta on wednesday they've been playing a lot of teams that uh are surprisingly the record is surprising is better than i would have expected atlanta is the opposite of that they're a really talented team who played really well last year and their record has not been as good this year uh, so atlanta on wednesday before that's at um on the road before two games at home on a back-to-back against a lebron less Los Angeles Lakers, and then against Oklahoma City um, before uh, that's on Friday, Saturday before a Monday, uh, still at home against Houston. So three straight at home. Anything in these games that you guys are excited for, looking out for? Yeah, we got three straight games against Dennis Schroeder, former teams. Atlanta had him. They, <laughs> they got rid of him for Trey Young. Uh, he turned down the contract from LA, and obviously he was on Oklahoma City for a minute too. So I'm curious to see if he can continue playing, you know, his vendetta style of play against these teams that he should actually have a vendetta with. That worries me. 
I am hoping, I mean, I'm hoping that that Jalen Brown will will make the return. Uh, he was, it was mentioned over the weekend that they were hopeful that he would be able to play uh, in tonight's game. He obviously was ruled out. Uh, but I, he's he's on the road with the team, so hopefully he'll he'll show up in Atlanta. Uh, that that's where he's from. Maybe he'll have a chance to play in front of the his home crowd. Um, uh, and if not, then 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 hopefully for that three game homestand. Um, but because that would help temper uh, some of the Schroeder Costa uh, that that I think we're all getting a little nauseated from. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to the Celtics Pride podcast. We are on Twitter at Celtics Pride Pod. You can find us individually at Mike Minkoff, MBA, and at Coach Motenko. Thanks again for listening. You are a part of Celtics Pride.